you're tuned into Decay Mag Podcast Online source for horror, thriller and sci-fi entertainment news Good afternoon, good evening, good morning My name is Ken Artus, founder for Decay Mag You are listening to Decay Mag Podcast We're in season number 7 And in this episode, we have two great interviews. The first is an on-site live interview with actor Robert Lazardo. And this recording was held at the No Limits Tattoo Convention in Queens, New York, where Robert Lazardo was in attendance as one of the guest attendees. So we had the pleasure of having this interview with Robert Lasaldo. Don't miss it, some great information there. Also, we present an exclusive interview with Hisani Johnson and Alberto Triana. They are the co-directors, co-writers for the horror action short currently on YouTube titled Red Hood It. And this film combines the DC universe with Stephen King's imagination, in particular, It. Pennywise, he makes an appearance in this film, so don't miss this interview as well. We'll also be providing some up-to-the-minute report on film trailers and movie news. Also, we'll delve a little bit into horror on television you can find this podcast on google music itunes spotify stitcher tune in be sure to follow dk mag on twitter instagram pinterest and facebook and without further ado here is dk mag podcast season seven episode six Selfie from Hell film arrives in cinemas. Horror has made a wide impact on the internet. There are countless short films that have intrigued audiences, even if they are not horror enthusiasts. One film in particular is going to be released in Canada, and that is Selfie from Hell. Industry Work Studios have announced the theatrical release for Selfie from Hell. Now, for those who are unaware of this horror short film to which the film is based off of, the film is directed and written by Erdal Silan. And the synopsis reads as follows. A girl's just taking a selfie for her boyfriend when something really creepy happens. Now, this film currently on YouTube has gone viral since 2015. As a matter of fact, we'll be providing a link to our initial coverage to this film. Now, Selfie from Hell is a work of art. It only stars one actor, well, specifically one actress, and that is Mila Adams. And the creature, the antagonizing force 
with Sacha Hoff. But Sacha Hoff doesn't have any role, it's just depicting some type of entity in the pictures. This is a very intriguing film because it blends technology, in particular cell phones and our use of cell phones to communicate with our loved ones, and in this case a boyfriend, and horror themes, the supernatural. Okay, as I said before, Selfie from Hell is not the first time we've seen a short film, a viral short film, make it to the big screen. Lights Out also followed in that footstep. Now, I'm emphasizing Lights Out, which was directed by David F. Sandberg, and it was released back in 2013, and it also starred one actress, had a great premise, great jump scare, but when it transitioned over to the big screen, in particular, when Hollywood dipped his dirty paws into this idea, it fell apart, it crumbled apart. It was a, a travesty in comparison to the original idea. But that doesn't matter because director David F. Sandberg went on to direct Annabelle Creation right after that. So he is set, he went on to do his Hollywood dream. But what about the dream? What about the integrity of the film, the creativity, the vision? My fear here with Selfie from Hell is that it may get diluted in its translation to convey horror to the audiences from an unfiltered, untainted vision from multiple investors, multiple opinions, producers that want the film executed in a certain way, actors to act a certain way, the creature to look a certain way, and it will all turn into a big pile of bullshit. That is the case. That is the fear. Well, if you haven't checked out Selfie from Hell, I highly recommend it. I will also be providing a link in our podcast notes for that short film. As I stated, that is the fear here. Many films that transform from the indie scene into, or even from the foreign markets, we have seen a reboot of Martyrs, for example, a gem in horror cinema and French extremism when it gets translated into VOD, the small screen, for example, it's, it's utterly garbage in comparison. So I'm not jumping to conclusions. We do have a trailer here for Selfie from Hell and it, it follows a template of the traditional supernatural film. You could you could smell it, you could see it a mile away that it's template-based. Not jumping to conclusions. Let's see what happens. But anyway, Selfie from Hell will release on the 4th of May, 2018 in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmond, New Westminster, and Winnipeg. So 
we'll have to stay tuned until it gets its formal release here in the US and we could weigh our opinion on the acting, how the creature is designed, the CGI if it has any, the practical effects, so on and so forth. But seeing the track record so far on the translation for viral films, indie films, into the big screen or VOD, yeah, yeah it's, it's, not, it's not looking so good with the track record alone. I could be wrong, that is my opinion. What is your opinion on Selfie from Hell making it to the big screen? Campfire Creepers Horror VR Content Part of the Tribeca Film Festival's slate of programming is a focus on VR content. Tribeca Immersive Tribeca Virtual Arcade and Tribeca Cinema 360. And some of the content that will be presented in these segments have to do with horror content. In particular, the program titled The Caretaker, which makes its debut, and also Campfire Creepers, The Skull of Sam, which is the topic of this segment. Campfire Creepers is directed and produced by Alejandre Aja. If you're unfamiliar with his work, Aja is most notable for his directorial work on The Hills Have Eyes and prior to that, the exceptional work of art in French extremism, High Tension. Ah. Here is some information on Campfire Creepers, The Skull of Sam. It stars Robert Englund, most notable for his role as Freddy Krueger. This is the first installment of a miniseries of recurring anthology centered around scary campfire stories. After its debut at the Tribeca Film Festival, Campfire Creepers will be available on the Oculus Rift and Gear VR headsets. This is not the first time horror has made it onto VR devices. Virtual reality headsets. These are, these are devices that are in its infancy with the expanding technology making content more immersive, more realistic, it's bound to happen that these devices will eventually replace either A, consoles, gaming, video gaming consoles, or your television, your flat screen at home. VR content, we have covered these films, this medium many times here at DK Mag. And I am so anxious to see the evolution of horror, thriller, science fiction content on this platform. Now, some in the audience may or may not know the difference between VR content and those cheap devices that you could pick up at the 99 cent store where you insert your cell phone 
to magnify the screen of your mobile device. That is not VR. VR content is a total, totally different experience. Imagine horror content. Imagine a video game. Imagine a film in which you can't close your eyes. You can't escape the sounds, the visuals of the unfolding horrific events in front of your face. It's very scary. I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, with Campfire Creepers, here's what Alejandre Aja has to say of his upcoming and debut on this virtual reality platform. He says, quote, as a director, I'm always looking for immersion. VR may be the tool we have been dreaming for so long. Unquote. Well, to catch campfire creepers, if you're in the New York City area, do stop by at the Tribeca Film Festival where they'll be showcasing this and a couple of other sci-fi horror thriller films segments whatever you may call this type of content and for those who are not in the new york city area stay tuned for campfire creepers once it becomes available for your particular vr device which is the oculus rift or the gear vr and if you don't have any of these two devices i don't have any of these devices myself but I could tell you one thing, it is worth the wait. As I mentioned before, VR content is in its infancy. It is as if you were purchasing the first line of flat screen TVs. And if for those who remember when flat screen TVs were hitting the market, they were bulky, the resolution was bad, the sound was shitty. And as the technology changes, within every six months, let's say, because so fast, so rapid. Now look at the flat screen TVs that we have on the market today. Absolutely mind blowing. So if you have not invested in the Oculus Rift or the Key VR, not to worry, give it some time. The technology will catch up with hardware or vice versa. And we're going to see some awesome content. I do predict that horror is going to make a tremendous impact on this platform. And we could all say goodbye to Hollywood and their content. This is going to be the new driving medium. He-Man movie gets new directors. For those young enough to remember, He-Man Masters of the Universe was an epic cartoon where all of us would look forward to in which He-Man will be defending Castle Grayskull and Eternia against the forces of evil Skeletor and his nefarious henchmen. The first motion picture depiction of this cartoon was released in 1987. It was a PG film running 1 hour 46 minutes and it was directed by Gary Goddard and it was written by David Odell. The synopsis for that film reads as follows. 
the heroic warrior He-Man battles against Lord Skeletor and his armies of darkness for control of Castle Grayskull. Portraying the role of He-Man was Dolph Lundgren and Skeletor was Frank Langetta. Meg Foster also stars and she portrayed Evil Lynn. Now we have information that the reboot, the reimagination for He-Man Masters of the Universe is in effect. At first it was going to be directed by David Goyer but now he has since stepped down from the director's chair. He will be writing the film and also producing. So who is taking over as director for this next vision? This reboot, reimagination of Masters of the Universe. The directing duo of Aaron and Adam Nee are stepping up to direct He-Man Masters of the Universe. According to Variety, Sony, which is backing this project, will release the film in 2019. The synopsis for Masters of the Universe, the 2019 version, according to IMDb, reads as follows. He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe, goes against the evil Skeletor to save the planet Eternia and protect the secrets of Castle Grayskull. Cartoons to film, the transition is 50-50. We have seen much success with Transformers. Super Mario, on the other hand, didn't do so well. Well, Super Mario is technically a video game, but it did have his cartoon days. Gem is another good example. It was a cartoon and it was an utter failure in the box office. Scooby-Doo, a long time cartoon, even to this day, and it had seen success on the big screen. So the track record is 50-50. It all depends on how the vision is conceived, constructed, and directed for this Masters of the Universe film. I'm not a big advocate of reboots and reimagination, I believe in having originality, and that's where some of these films lack this, this particular direction. Cartoons translating into the big screen, it's a big risk. Masters of the Universe, it has potential to fascinate a new generation and also bring nostalgia to the younger crowd, my crowd, my age demographic that grew up watching these cartoons after school or Saturday morning, wherever the case may be. I'm hoping that this new vision, this new direction for Masters of the Universe will be a much better translation than the 1987 depiction, which in itself, it's a cult classic, but it's, it is kind of tacky and cheesy. It does remind me so much of Flash Gordon, even when I seen it years ago. 
We have to wait and see how the film releases, how it translates, what the trailer presents to audiences. It's too early to tell. It's too early to weigh in any type of suitable opinion. Exclusive interview, actor, producer, writer, Robert Lasado. For those who follow DK Mag are well aware of my strong belief, of my strong opinion of Latinos and African Americans' contribution in this horror genre. It is unfortunate that we see Hollywood has still not opened the doors for Latinos and African Americans to convey their ideas and to break stereotypical roles that these particular scripts are written. It's, it's uncanny how things have not changed. We're in the 21st century. I had the pleasure of interviewing Robert Lazardo at the No Limits Tattoo Convention. This recording was held on Saturday, April, 22nd, 2018. Most of the conversation revolved on Latinos' contribution to horror cinema and even cinema itself in general. If you're unaware of Robert Lazardo's filmography, he starred in Anarchy Parlor released in 2015, Death Race in 2018, He's also starred in countless films. He has over 120 acting credits. He's also a producer, writer, which is a huge accomplishment for any Latino in the movie production business. These are the performers. These are the artists that we have to shed a spotlight on. It is not just because a film comes along that transcends cultures that we give them awards. No, there are many people working behind the scenes right now, right this minute, that go unrecognized for their talents and their contributions in film. And it's, as I mentioned, it is uncanny why the doors are not open to these particular individuals and why these individuals are not showcased. Also part of our conversation is pursuing personal goals. And that is another area that I truly emphasize in all of my interviews, how to pursue your goals despite whatever dilemma, if you are restrained financially, or need some advice or whatever the case may be, always pursue your dreams. Never let anything stop you from becoming a filmmaker, an actor, a performer, a singer, especially if you're Latino, especially if you're African-American or any majority race. Don't let anything stop you if you're coming from the ghetto of Los Angeles or the Bronx or Brooklyn, always follow your dreams. And this interview is uncut, unedited. I've ripped it off of my recording device 
and placed it here on the podcast in its entirety so that way audiences could grasp the full conversation the full context of the discussion between myself and Robert Lazardo. And without further ado, here is my interview with Robert Lazardo, actor, producer, and writer, and fellow New Yorker. He was born and raised here in Brooklyn, New York. Good afternoon, this is Ken Artus from DK Mag, and we are live here at the uh, no Limits Tattoo Expo, and joining me today is Roberto Lazardo. We're going to be discussing very briefly uh, his career in film uh, and also tattooing. Thank you for joining me this afternoon, Mr. Lazardo. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, first question. Say, uh, you know, being a Latino, going up in, in your career in indie film and also mainstream film, were there any challenges that posing, especially when it comes to stereotype? Oh. Let me let me tell you a quick story about that, Ken. I remember many years ago, I think it was probably in the late 1980s or 90s, I'd show up at auditions and the casting director would look at me, she'd say, or whoever, he or she would say, uh, excuse me, sir, the messenger entrance is around back. I say, excuse me, ma'am, I'm not here to deliver a package, I'm here to audition. That's pretty fucked up. And, and especially there is, seems to be a stereotype, especially with Latinos, with tattoos as well. How do you feel about that? Well, I, for one, my opinion is we're still under this stigma that we have to be a certain character. One actor in particular, he hasn't broken out of this stereotype of roles, and that, that's offensive in my opinion. I agree. I think, you know, my theory is, I don't, and here's the thing, Ken, I don't want to point fingers at anybody or sound bitter or negative, but my theory is, is that maybe the reason is, is because some of the writers in Hollywood have know, some idea stuck in their head for whatever reason, and their perception of the experience you know, from, from the outside point of view, without really understanding either the culture or the creative aspect of tattooing, don't have any insight in terms of that. There's no insight, I think, or, or desire to understand the motivation to communicate the art that way or even understand the culture of some of the people that they exploit and, uh, and trivialize in terms of the culture, the the mind of the people, the tendencies that they focus, you know, the, if there's a tendency, say, uh, with various types of people who grow up in socioeconomically challenged areas, they focus on, well, you know, they focus, I think, on the negative too much, and rather than see the heart of the matter, they go to an easy sell, and they take the, probably the most ugliest aspects of that experience, and they exacerbate it, and... They write characters based either, I think, because of fear, um, lack of understanding, or just they simply don't, maybe they just don't care enough to dig deeper to find out what makes certain types of people tick, why they behave the way they do, and how some of us are desperately trying to transcend the circumstances we grew up in, 
the people around us that maybe have influences, whatever the reason is, there hasn't been a whole lot of research until recently, I think, with some filmmakers who are concerned about the social political backlash they're experiencing because African American people will not tolerate it anymore being treated like slaves or servants. And I, I dare say also the Latinos are treated too in a way very similar. I had a brother, uh, an African American man came up to me and said, hey man, guess what homie, you're the new Negros. And I, and I didn't understand at first what he meant until I, I kept reading these scripts that some of these producers were sending me and I'd read the dialogue and I, I, I didn't know whether to say thank you for the job or say, hey man, is this an insult? Why do y'all keep seeing me like this? You know, and, and I, so my, I think a hundred years later, to answer your question, I think that a lot of it comes from fear and laziness, simply not taking the time to do proper research, uh, step outside your comfort zone as, a, as, a, as an individual, go into different uh, 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 situations uh, in, in, you know, as far as geography, meeting people from different walks of life, making, having a repertoire of friends that, are, that represent various cultural dynamics so that your life experience becomes broader. If you grow up in a, in a, in a, in a vacuum, you live in a box, then your understanding about people in life is, is of course it's going to be limited because you haven't had any really life experience to teach you what people from other cultures are really, really, really like. Not what you saw on television, not what some movie propagated about, some nonsense. You have to have the, the, the desire to investigate various tribes within the world from the point of view of love and interest, not, you know, as some kind of uh, exploitive experiment to make money and I think that's unfortunately what they do too often absolutely and then thank you for that rich uh, commentary I agree 100% and I'm hoping Hollywood not even just Hollywood just the indie scene itself really changes their perspective of the Latino community and also African-American culture and I see you have invested much of your um, time in your career with horror um, please shed some light on, on that aspect of your career In terms of the the, the, decor, the decorative element of the, I mean, the tattoos themselves, or I'm trying, I'm trying to understand the question. Uh, uh, the question. So loud here again. I'm sorry, yeah. I can barely hear you. <laughs> even with these giant ears I have in my head, I can't even hear you, man. <laughs> it's not your fault. I'm just going. I think I'm going deaf. <laughs> well, for for your advancement in your career with horror and also with uh, action uh, thrillers, uh, shed some light on, on that aspect of your career. Okay, I think most recently it's been auspicious in terms of character development for me because I've met some independent filmmakers, especially within the horror genre, who themselves uh, communicate their life history, their experiences through, through the tattoos. So they don't see the ink as a problem. They actually, it's a celebratory type of thing. And so they've written characters for me in the recent past where I've played leads in various movies where the characters have intelligence, insight, you know, and even if, if, if the framework of the story is a bit violent, because it is a horror movie, of course. there's still a situation there, though, where the character is allowed to breathe somewhat, and there's, a, there's enough of a... In, the, in, in terms of the writing, they, they, they've constructed stuff for me that I can actually have fun with as an artist. It's, like, it's kind of like this. If you look at a, a tattoo artist who has an incredible ability, could draw anything, 
and you tell them, okay, I want you to draw, I don't know, a cartoon character for the next 20 years. After a while, that artist is going to get very frustrated realizing that there's a lot more depth to his ability than just drawing a cartoon character. And so, to, to answer your question, the good news is, is that recently I've been able to link up with younger men who grew up watching me, who are actually affected in a very positive way uh, by my, my honesty, my disposition in the way I presented myself in spite of the industry. And so now they're making movies and they're in positions of power within the independent realm. So whether it's a horror movie, a horror comedy, or a, a slice of life movie that's a little bit, you know, you know, different, that it's a multicultural experience. I just did a film called Homestay, where the lead characters are African-American, so, and, 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 and other characters are Latino and Asian-American, so I thought it was really wonderful to be involved in a, a thriller. It's, this movie's a mystery thriller. And you're not quite sure the kind of character I portray. You don't know if he's a good guy, a bad guy. So I love the fact they create this kind of mysterious situation so you have to figure it out. Because people may not be ready yet to see Robert Lozardo transition overnight into like the good guy, so to speak. So that graduation, that evolution has to be slow somewhat in stages so people can finally you know, say, oh yeah, right, I, I believe that, I get that. And so in terms of creative... Uh, creative slash professional opportunities, there's a lot more now than there was before. I wouldn't say in the mainstream yet, because I still feel that there's a lot of stigma, and, and I generally feel, based on some of my experiences, that producers and writers, unfortunately, whether they want to hire you or not, if someone in that camp feels that the tattoo or, or anything extreme does not fit within the framework of their fantasy, they just eradicate you from equation. Doesn't matter how good you are, they're like, no, nah, I don't like that look, I don't like what it represents. And so then once again, you're dealing with prejudice, you're dealing with stereotyping, you're dealing with them projecting their personal feelings onto the artist rather than allowing the artist to transcend the platform. They don't always allow that, but in the independent film realm, some of the people that are hiring me, hiring me now are fans of mine who grew up watching me and, and thank me, Robert, thank you so much for being courageous enough to be honest in the way you communicate your art form because it motivated us to be to do our thing and now we're going to write stories that are basically hinge on that ex that exploration so other people like us don't feel so disenfranchised don't feel like there's something wrong because their skin is darker their hair is a different color they've tattooed themselves or they grew up in a in a, an impoverished neighborhood like I grew up I come from poverty man I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth now I'm not knocking people that have been fortunate enough to grow up when in situations of wealth and support. I'm just saying, my particular journey, I think it's time for those of us who've gone down that pathway to be allowed to grow rather than to be locked up in some kind of cage forever because of what some people have no clue what that life experience is like, you know, uh, project a fantasy that has no bearing on any kind of real reality. And even if it does, let's get away from that. You know, we've seen how many how many movies do we have to see where young men are killing each other, man? Can't we find a way to tell a story where we can recognize the harshness of our world, but then by the final act, the conclusion is though that there's hope and that people from all various walks of life can find a way out of necessity for the species to survive to, you know, to work it out, man. 
And then you leave the theater going, wow, I can relate to those characters. They're not super, they ain't flying around with some damn cape and a mask. <laughs> the heroes are those who have the courage enough to change their lives, affect others in that sense. Teachers, firemen, people who take risks in life, that truly social workers, you know, people that come, uh, men or women that help young people get off drugs. Let's tell some stories like that. Those are the real superheroes, man. No matter what walks of life they come from, you know, black, white, Latino, you know, Native American, whatever it is, Asian American. We've done a list of people that their life story, their experience is just as relevant as anybody else, man. So let's put some money into movies like that. Let's prop that up. Make that, make that the superhero because I really feel that entertainment has a responsibility not just to for an hour or two distract people from their day-to-day -day lives or the doldrums but also to educate the man and teach them something that they can take out into the world that's positive and take people out of the darkness not put them back into the darkness man exactly. and that's what it, that's that's the thing that I, I feel we need a lot of work on big time brother there's a responsibility that's present that needs to be looked at you know and but you know so you know it's a journey man i'm positive it's it's changing slowly it'll get there one day you know i hope i'm around to see it we'll see what happens and, and, and to touch up on what you were speaking about growing up the area that you grew up and i'm from the bronx and I, I i see that as inspiration because we we have uh we have that obligation to um persevere over where we come from, appreciate where we come from, but we got to persevere. A person who has a silver spoon in their mouth, I feel sorry for them because they don't know what life's challenges are. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it can be very sad for those who are denied the experience to develop some character along the way. You, know, you get hit by life and it can be uncomfortable, but man, I tell you what, it gives you some serious character and, 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 and shapes you like tempered steel to be able to bear, to endure, and basically just go after things you want, man. It gives you strength, you know, it builds you. Don't tear you down, it makes you better. Yeah. And final two questions, I know I don't want to take uh, too much of <laughs> um, For Latinos and African Americans, what is your advice for them, especially now that we have social media at our disposal and we could use that to progress in the creative arts? I think for those individuals that are fortunate enough to be involved in creative endeavors, they need to, to, to look to their brothers and sisters in the community, like Rasa, you know, the revolution of the mind, of creativity, and use the art form to inspire, to create hope and awareness. I think that's how we heal one another, you know, by not allowing the idea, the stigma, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the misperception propagated by mainstream media that continues to enslave uh, various cultures. We as individuals need to work together as artists, or from different walks of life, and rather than kill one another, we need to try to create situations of unity. And what I've found in my own life experience is that the stage, man, or art classes, things that involve anything that allows a young man or woman to feel, a young man or young woman to feel good about themselves, that's contagious. And so if you can teach mentor a younger person or someone in your life that you feel that's struggling because of some kind of conflict because of the way they came up because of a dysfunctional family or they saw a lot of too much violence coming up you can help guide them not by preaching by demonstrating the power of intelligence creativity 
and the fact that no matter where you come from, what you look like, if you put your mind to it and you have people around that support you, you can accomplish anything. That thought, that philosophy that's not theoretical, it's factual, actually does change lives. It saves lives. So we just have to continue to remind each other not to propagate the lie that the man, the master, the slave master does to make his mainstream media is one of the most powerful influences in the world. It's more powerful than the church because think about it, think about this. Every party in their house has a TV. That's the altar. And people watch that stuff all the time. So I would say, be careful what you watch. Be careful what stuff you allow into your, into your psyche, man, because that influences the way you think. So I would say individuals all individuals from all especially in, in the communities where it seems hopeless do not allow uh, the dictates of commercialism of capitalism of mainstream to try to define you as an individual it's a lie it's not reality it's not real don't believe in it believe in yourself believe in your brothers and sisters your homies and your your family that is there for you and even if they're not for there for you believe in yourself and, and, and whatever God you pray to, pray to God for strength to endure. Because trust me, I was alone a lot of times in my life. There was nobody there, but there was some. There was a guardian angel. Something kept me alive. The grace of suffering kept me alive. And in that suffering, I grew. So I would say to anybody who's thinking about taking themselves out, doing something destructive because they can't bear the pain anymore, wait another day. Hang in there, wait another day. And sooner or later, someone's going to show up. A friend is going to be born out of adversity. Is going to be there to talk to you and remind you that your life does have value. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And that goes uh, to touch upon on what you were talking about with the commercialism. Uh, everybody has their cell phone. They, they're just paying the man. Instead of investing that money, $200, $300 a month, they could put that into themselves and better themselves. Uh, what projects do you have coming up that we could all look forward to? I'm excited to say I'm going to appear in a horror comedy. I emphasize the comedy part. Uh, that'll be released Halloween. It's called Cynthia, directed by Devin Downs, Kenny Gaze. Uh, they're dear to my heart. This is the gentleman, Devin Downs, I was telling you about earlier, who is a producer, writer, who's also, like myself, tattooed extensively. Incredibly intelligent man. Kenny Gage is his partner. Also, uh, just a, a, a very rare type of individual uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, having the kind of insight necessary to remind people like myself that they do have value and so you know I'm excited to appear in, in any movies that they that they do I also got another movie coming out this summer I believe with Danny Trejo it's called The Silencer so me and Danny finally teamed up so I'm excited to see that this this uh, this summer it's an action film so yeah That'll be good. <laughs> That's great. And uh, Danny Trejo also, a Latino coming up, also tatted up. It's amazing. And that's why I appreciate the indie culture, especially in horror film. That's the growth. And when mainstream media sees that, it's like, oh, okay, let's, let's shine some light on these talents over here. And not only for performers, but also for directors, too. Yeah. It's wonderful when that happens because I don't want to sound paranoid or nothing, but it is kind of a mafia in Hollywood. It's cliques like anything else. You know, various tribes and organizations. They Some people stick together. Some people are not so myopic in their thinking. They're a little bit more broad-minded broad and they allow other people to, to participate. But I find, unfortunately, that it can be very, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, just it's... 
it's like a it's like a gang, man. You know, and and so it's nice when you meet people uh, that uh, allow situations of of employment and growth that uh, are outside the box, man. You know, and they they allow that to occur. It's a, it's a it's a good thing. It's necessary because you're dealing in, in anybody's interested in getting in the movie industry or doing movies have to remember that they can be really talented, man. But the political element is alive and well. I don't care what anybody says. With all the liberal consciousness that seems to be so pervasive, it really is, and it is, and it is. And I still see situations where you're dealing with uh, nepotism. You know, family people helping each other out, which I guess I understand. People, you, you know, it's like that saying, you know, it's who you know. I never used to believe that, man, until I got to a certain point in my career and I realized, wait a minute, man, I'm, I'm still here, man. I'm still doing my thing. Both guns are loaded. Why am I not getting promoted? And I look around, I see some other people, and I'm not bitter about it, but I'm realizing, oh, wait a minute, this cat knew somebody and he got promoted. This person knew somebody else. And so it's like a familia. This familia, various familia, based on tribes, based on thinking, whatever the group think is, they decide to create families, mafias within the industry, and they kind of look after each other, which I understand. But I don't know how I don't know how evolved that thinking is, though, in terms of you know the artistic aspect of it, man. If it's always going to be about well, you with us or you with them, it's right. like yo, I'm 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 just a, you know, like yeah, true. I represent I represent tattoo tattoo community. I represent those who feel. Like they belong on the island of misfit toys, you know, because of their background, the way they look, their ethnicity, whatever it is. I can relate to that. But we got to be careful, though, that even within this, this, the, the supposedly the supposed subculture, that we don't create gangs even within that, and then replicate the same thing that the Illuminati's doing by saying, no, it's you and us. You down here, moving blocks for Pharaoh. And we're up here watching all that. We got to be careful that we don't replicate those same patterning. You know, if you see someone that's good at a job, give them a chance. Don't say, well, no, we don't know him. He ain't with us. We're going to hire this person because we know them. We have a history with them. We don't care about these other people. So that's the problem. We got to get beyond the agenda, the, the, the gang mentality. That I don't care whether it's the government, Hollywood, it, that thinking is one of the reasons why people bang their head against the wall trying to wonder why, no matter how hard they try, they're not getting in the right positions that they, the positions they feel they deserve because until someone anoints you, until Caesar says, you know what, you're in, you don't get in. I don't care how, you could be, you could make, you know, you could be the best of the best. It's like that movie. I don't know if you ever saw this movie with uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, he played that character, uh, Jake LaMotta. And he was like the in his day, Jake LaMotta, He was like one of the one of the best fighters of his time. He he fought Sugar Ray, and uh, he wanted the title. He thought they believed his his camp believed, and he believed that he was good enough to become the champion. But some mafioso dude said, "Yeah, he can be good. He can beat all these cats, all these bums, all these all these great fighters. But until he makes a deal with us." The mafioso, he ain't gonna get that shot at the title. When I heard that, I go, damn, that sounds like Hollywood, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. And once again, my name is Ken Artus from DK Mag. Respect, DK Mag. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your your interview and, and all the people out there. I hope I didn't bore you to death. <laughs> <laughs>
Directors. Writers. Red Hooded. For our second exclusive interview segment, I had the pleasure of speaking with Pisani Johnson and Arbelto Triana on Monday, April 23rd, 2018. They are the co-director, co-writers for the short film, the fan film, Red Hood It, now available on YouTube. Red Hood It combines the DC universe with Stephen King's imagination in his world, It, featuring Pennywise. Well, last year, Pennywise made a great impression with audiences with this reboot reimagination directed by Andy Muschietti and written by Chase Palmer, Harry Judy Fuginawa, and Gary Doberman. Based on the characters by Stephen King, of course. But in this fan film, we see Red Hood. And for those who are unaware, Red Hood is a DC character heavily involved in the Batman universe, Gotham City. Red Hood is Jason Todd. The storyline behind Red Hood and Jason Todd, how Jason Todd, who was Robin before he became Red Hood, it's intricate. It involves a good conversation to describe who these characters are. But for the purpose of this film, none of the backstory is provided. And that's a good thing because fan films are not supposed to be an in-depth history lesson behind the character. That's why you have Christopher Nolan who do these elaborate two and a half hour films behind a particular character such as Superman and Batman. For a fan film, there is not enough budget, enough time to convey this type of message. What Red Hood It conveys is an action sequence, very intensive. The cinematography is fantastic. And we have a crossover here with the DC Universe and Pennywise is involved. It makes sense. Do tune in to DK Mag. We'll be providing a link to our film review for Red Hood It. And in our conversation with Mr. Johnson and Mr. Triana, we discussed the very aspects of the production for Red Hood It, as well as achieving one's goal as an aspiring filmmaker. I do not like to use the word aspiring. That's out of the equation. If you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker. If you have an idea, if you pick up a camera, whether it be an expensive red component or your mobile device, you are a filmmaker. Do check out this interview and hear the insights for these individuals, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Triana, on what they have to offer, the advices for filmmakers out there who want to get their idea out, who want to project their voice. Without further ado, here's my interview with Sonny Johnson and Alberto Triana. My name is Ken Artuz, founder for DK Mag, and joining me this Monday afternoon is Hisani Johnson and Arbelto Trina, and we're going to be discussing 
Red Hood It, a short film currently on YouTube that blends the DC universe with Stephen King's It. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you. Uh, please provide the audiences with the origin story. How did you guys uh, start up in the film industry and started creating this wonderful content for YouTube? Awesome. Well, uh, my name is Hassani Johnson. Uh, I started filmmaking the way a lot of other filmmakers did. I just picked up a camera when I was around 12 or 13 years old and made films with my friends that we would put into theaters. We would make feature films and compete them and put them into theaters and uh, rent out the movie theaters. And every year we would do that and the community would come and we would sell out. And uh, when we hit college, I kind of shifted more toward being in front of the camera for a while. I learned a lot about how to direct actors and but I always kind of knew I was going to shift back into the crew position, into directing, writing, producing, things of that nature. And uh, I've been making fan films since about 2012. Uh, I made a fan film called Grace and Earth One, a couple episodes of that, uh, a Green Lantern uh, project where their script is really starting to get a buzz around town, around L.A., and uh, today uh, I'm really proud of Red Hood It!, uh, yeah, and uh, I'm Alberto Triana. Uh, very similar. I started, you know, same thing, picking up a camera. I was about 12 or 13 years old, taking my dad's uh, video camera, and I would just shoot short films with my buddies all through middle school, high school, and uh, moved up to Las Vegas, Nevada for college, and just started working from there, doing short films, working on features, music videos, commercial stuff, a lot of freelance work over the last few years. Uh, in terms of fan films, Red Hood It is the first fan film that I've been a part of, and it's been quite the experience. Um, I've always been interested in doing fan films because growing up, I've been such a fan of comic book characters, horror films, genre stuff, video games. So a lot of a lot of those iconic characters really stood out to me. So working on a project like this, I mean, it was kind of a dream come true. Thank you, gentlemen. And with the popularity right now, we see uh, the word geekdom is now popular uh, in mainstream media where the cosplayers are pushing this uh, concept into the forefront. They, they're creating their own costumes. And I see that fan films is also beginning to emerge as a new medium in itself. So, gentlemen, uh, for this concept, Red, Ho uh, Red Hood It!, how did that all come together? Well, I mean, when we started off, um, both of us are, you know, we are fans of the genre. And like you said, you know, geekdom, fandom has become mainstream. And I think, you know, back in the day, people would look at it like, oh, yeah, you're into comic books. You know, that had a very negative connotation. But now it's a very positive thing. These are very, you know, you could tell a really good story with these characters. It's not just pure entertainment, there is art behind it. And finding that and using that to tell the story, I think is one of the most important things and what kind of attracts it, like attracts me to the genre um, in regards to Red Hood It. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite moments of this entire process was its conception was, you know, working with Hassani and him just literally like 
spitballing and just looking at me going, hey, uh, what if we did kind of a mashup? And I'm like, okay, he's like Red Hood versus Pennywise. And I'm not going to lie, I was kind of blown away by that. I was like, whoa, whoa, what? I was like, wait a minute. And like, the more I thought about it, the more I saw the dots connect and it just made total sense. Like, I, I wouldn't even have thought about combining those two worlds. But the more Hisani explained it and the more we went through and we saw the, the parallels and the connections between these universes, it just made perfect sense. Yeah. And um, I, I obviously I've loved every iteration of Stephen King's It. Um, I have done a fan film before about Jason Todd, AKA the red hood as a younger person before, like all of the inciting incidents of his life. And, uh, I think the thing with me as a filmmaker is that I really enjoy putting my own spin on things. Uh, I know I do have projects that I've come up with on my own. I have web series that I've done that are, you know, my creation and it's for me kind of finding a balance between doing projects about ideas you love, but still having your own voice. Um, it's a weird world out there on YouTube. Uh, a filmmaking career can be launched simply by being seen millions and millions of times. So, I could easily just make a very purist style Red Hood film or a very purist version of Pennywise, you know, in an it fan film. But to me, I think as much as I want to please the audience and as much as I want to show that I can stay in my lane, I also have something to say and the urge to do something different and interesting. I think oftentimes I'll trade in mainstream notoriety for creative um, fulfillment. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. And to touch up on uh, what you had just mentioned about providing good content on YouTube, unfortunately, there, there are some instances that film directors create great content on YouTube. And then when they stray over to the mainstream, to Hollywood, too many hands in the cookie jar, their idea just disintegrates and it, well, turns shitty <laughs> but Agreed. that's Agreed. that's that's the the laws of nature i guess and that that's what makes indie filmmaking not just in horror action whatever so fulfilling just as you mentioned because it's your creativity your style true very very true and you know what else i think i think the fans don't quite understand what makes fan films unique um, we've caught not a lot of flack, but the flack we do catch is because of the changes we've made to the characters. And I think people are misinterpreting the whole point of a mashup film. It's creative and different in its, in its conception, mashing two different IPs together that you would never ever see done by Hollywood. It's your one chance to see something like this. And I think that alone should be a reason why people get excited about the fans doing things like this. Yes, it's so true. And you were, you touched on my next question. Uh, creating a fan film provides a problem in itself uh, from both sections. One, 
you may run into the trademark area or copyright and the other from the fans that follow these characters and one of the things that they're so anal about is the timeline or the costuming or something like that so were these two things uh, into consideration when you created this concept Absolutely. I mean, I think you can't make a fan film without at least taking those things into consideration. Um, early on, one of the first conversations Hassani and I had when we were before the script was even done, you know, we we're like, you know, this is going to be quite the journey to just complete this project. And we are going to open ourselves up to a lot of to a lot of criticism, especially from the fans, if we don't do it a certain way. And, you know, the conversation led to, well, I don't care if we get a million views. I don't care if I get a hundred views. I want to make the best film that I want to make right now. And, you know, let that make a statement. And what's, what's like touching on earlier about fan films and staying in your lane, but at the same time, wanting to be creative, have your own voice. I think with what we did here with Red Hooded is that we, we focused on the characters themselves. We focus on the characterization of them what it means, like what, what do they stand for? What are his ideals? What, are his, what is his attitude? And yes, we did draw his costume, obviously from visual you know, representations from video games, animated films, comics, and we tried to stick as close as we can, but find creative ways to, to put a little bit of our own flavor on it. Not just for the sake of putting our own flavor onto it, but applying like a real world practical sense behind everything. You know, you have this character who, isn't Bruce Wayne. He doesn't have billions and billions of dollars. So his costume gets beat up. He doesn't look flashy. He doesn't look brand new every time. He can't afford to have like a hundred helmets. So when his helmet gets damaged, he has to work around it. So his his whole thing was we tried to focus on function, you know, and with that said, I, I'm 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 proud with the direction we went with and I stand by the choices we made. But, you know, sometimes you make a few changes here and there. Some fans like it, some fans don't. And unfortunately, you know, you just kind of have to deal with it. Precisely. Right, right. You can't please everybody. Especially Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you spend your whole time trying to please everyone else, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to make the film you want to make. And at the end of the day, you, if you're going to put all this time and money into it, you, your voice should be the strongest voice in the project. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the challenge for any type of filmmaker, even if mainstream to the indie uh, film circuit, there's always that challenge of getting that negative reception. And it, when it's creative, you take it, you construct it next time around, you keep that in mind. But when it's those trolls or someone who has no idea about creating a film, that's totally different. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely. Well, yeah. That's an interesting part about this journey. Uh, we are struggling in a sense. And actually, that's what stood out about your article and your review, is that we learned from it. You had very valid perspectives. You actually used, I don't know, artistic merit to judge, you know, to judge what we have done. You judged it based on artistic criteria. I think the movie going public could benefit from a little, I, I know, being more critical from an artistic standpoint. Right now, we're being criticized based on 
the shoes the character wore. Therefore, I'm going to dislike the video. <laughs> the, the length of his hair, the color of his hair, but not the actual costumes and not the performances and not the way we move the camera and not the, 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 the metaphorical meaning of the slash across his helmet and how, how the uh, decaying nature of his costume actually refers or, you know, is essentially a physical manifestation of how this person who nearly was killed by a killer clown feels inside. People haven't really taken the time or they don't give independent filmmakers credit enough to think that we could be that insightful and that dedicated to saying a little bit more. It's unfortunate that the majority of audiences, uh, when they watch a film, all they think about is these these nuances that are irrelevant instead of just taking the time to absorb the visual narrative, the camera work, the cinematography, the, even the color grading, what colors were used to convey emotion. And for Red Hood It, uh, you guys did a great job of just moving that camera, the, the curvature of the camera when the dialogue with uh, Red Hood with one of his uh, captors, that, that instills that emotion and it just brings out the whole dialogue like 1,000%. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think one of, the, one of the things we really wanted to come across is that we are serious filmmakers. You know, some, some fan films and, you know, not, not to talk badly about other than, but a lot of fan films, you know, being made by fans, not everyone is a filmmaker. You know, some people just adore the character and would love to see them play the character. So, you know, they, they take it upon themselves. They, they do everything they can to get a camera and they shoot this cool, you know, they shoot this cool fan video and they put it on YouTube and, you know, that's great. It, I mean, that's what's so wonderful about working with these types of characters. I mean, they inspire creativity and, you know, people that like make their own interpretations of the character. And, you know, with us, that's part of what we wanted to do, but ultimately we are storytellers, we are filmmakers, and we wanted to kind of show that as when we approach this film is like, look, our cinematography needs to be on point. Our sound design has to be on point. The costumes and everything else, the characters, you know, yes, we are working with the, with the medium of the fan film. So we are going to, play to those but at the end of the day we wanted to make sure we made a solid film not just a fan film yeah that's a huge difference <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and f as independent filmmakers uh what are the challenges that you see especially with diversity in the field of creating film in the indie scene whether it's horror action whatever the genre may be um i'm really proud that our cast and crew was incredibly diverse uh we had um predominantly asian american uh crew and mm -hmm. actors um i'm obviously african-american alberto yeah cuban-american yeah yeah i'm half cuban half yeah, puerto rican yeah, yeah like so we got the latinos representing and we get <laughs> uh <laughs> you know we have uh obviously a, a, a caucasian as well in there so i'll be honest i'm really really proud of that and to be honest there wasn't a very there wasn't any tough times regarding race 
Um, I don't think it held us back. I think it made the creative perspective of the film a lot better, to be completely honest. Um, I believe our uh, our indie woes come from the same place as every other indie filmmaker, which is, you know, financially, we had to do this film for nothing. We used only our skill and the tools available to us. And that right there just kind of was a part of the genesis of this project. Making this project wasn't just about, you could take the word fan out of it. It, it was more about testing for me, my skills with no money to see if I could pull off these costumes uh, with the relationships I have, you know, uh, going through people who have more skill at creating these costumes and communicating to them what it is I was looking for and still getting it done for no money. Um, going to stunt coordinators and explaining to them what I was going for, fights that would amplify the story and getting the time and effort put into the film without having to pay a lot of money. Um, same thing with the locations. How do you get locations when you have no money? Well, what you lack in money, you better damn well make up for in character because if people don't like you, they could give a damn about your film. Uh, so ultimately, every step, same thing with post, you know, editing. Like, do you have the strength of character to edit this film when people are throwing paying jobs at you? And you have to decide, do I pay my bills or do I show my cast and crew who dedicated 10 days of their lives for free to your film? Do I show them that I'm dedicated to them more so than I am monetary gain? Because that's important. Otherwise, you'll never get these people to work with you again. You're tested every step of the way as an independent filmmaker. Uh, you know, your, your skill is tested. Your will is tested. Your wits are tested. and for me to come out on the other end, uh, I feel more capable and more deserving of an opportunity with a budget because I know what I can do truly without it. Right, right. And that that's in a challenge for itself for many indie filmmakers is the monetary aspect. And most filmmakers, when they're starting out, they just they want to be Scorsese mm -hmm. or they want to do the next Star Wars. But you can't do that if you have no pocket change. Absolutely. So you got to work with what you got. Absolutely. And the better results you get, I mean, the confidence that you have. I, I, I suggest that all filmmakers spend some time making movies with nothing because you learn so much about who you are. Like when things go wrong, are you the sort of guy that your crew will rally around or the sort of guy that your crew will avoid because you become such a nasty person? You know, like that's a good question to ask yourself because the, the tough times are a coming, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah and when uh, they hit they hit you hard mm -hmm. yeah i don't think there's a single production where like something doesn't go wrong you could have planned for everything everything that could have gone wrong you could have prepared for but you know it's it always seems like it's never enough and even though everything can be going really well something can you know you never know it's something out of your control can just throw everything out of throw everything out of whack and now you've lost your momentum you've lost this and now it's 
you know, like you were saying, you, you dig deep and that's where you see what you're really made of. And you see your team, like, you know, you, you see, do you have this, you know, you need a bunch of like ride or dive people on your team. You know, you can't have, you know, some fair weather people come in like, hey, I'm going to help you make this film, but only when it's convenient to me, it's hard to, it's hard to succeed that way. So team building is a really important part of making a film because it is such a collaborative art. That is so true. And one of the great resources you could find persons, depending on where you live at, uh, in New York City, it's fairly easy to find individuals who are hungry and they want to help, they want to contribute their time. But there's also that aspect as a, as a filmmaker starting out, someone might come along, see your project, want to make tweaks, get the bigger cut of the pie. Were those, are those things that you guys consider when making a, a film with no budget and people are coming in, they want to give their two cents and they want to get a bigger cut? Ah, oh, I helped out. I want to be producer or something like that. I don't think we did not. It was actually a little bit of the opposite, specifically on Red Hood. Um, we're shooting out of Las Vegas, Nevada. And the independent film scene is the perfect, from my perspective, the perfect mix of the best uh, an indie filmmaker could hope for and the worst a indie filmmaker could hope for. On the best side of things, you have these, essentially, these heroes, like legitimate people who are heroic in every sense of the word, when it comes to indie film, they will commit things to you that truthfully you don't deserve. They're just putting faith in you and, and hoping that their sacrifice and that their contributions will amount to something. And I'm the sort of person where when you do that, I'm going to try and make whatever it was that I was working on even better to show you that it's that everything you gave me was worth it and everything you put into it I'm going to essentially make, you know what I mean? I'm going to make that, uh, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to make it way worth, worth a lot more than what it was you contributed. You know what I mean? I'm going to make you feel like a million bucks along the way too. However, uh, Las Vegas is a place that is, I would say, been used by the Hollywood system. You know, like the strip. Uh, there's a couple locations around Las Vegas where like Hollywood uses it all the time. So when you try to go through the proper channels here in Las Vegas, you don't get a lot of help because they only know how to work within a studio system. Oh, you want to shoot here? Well, mm. it'll be $20,000. You want to shoot there? It'll be $10,000. And when you ask them, do you have a location? They say, sure. And they send you there and they want $10,000 from you to shoot for a day or a half a day or They'll literally, in some cases, leave in the middle of doing a tour with you. Of the space, yeah. Of the space and just leave you by yourself because they found out in the middle of the conversation that you don't have any money. And if indie filmmakers are not prepared for both ends of the spectrum, you could either be left completely demoralized or you could be left, you could be leaving someone who did really great things for you demoralized. So I say... It's important to be prepared for both. Absolutely. And that those are one of the aspects of any indie filmmaker, especially starting out. They got to be careful with the sharks. 
They got to be careful with every angles, hustlers. You know, you could you could get a great location for a good price if you have the budget. If you don't have the budget, hey, ask Grandpa Sylvester and something <laughs> like that, or yeah. go to the next bodega. <laughs> you know, they have a basement, and you can you can work with what you got. True. Absolutely. True. I mean, one of the, I mean, just kind of talking about, you know, some of the struggles with the, you know, indie film and indie film production. I think one of the, one of the toughest things with Red Hood It probably was the the locations, but, you know, it ended up working out because like, you know, Hassani was saying, there are heroes out here. You know, we, we had the pleasure and honor to work with some really wonderful people out here who helped us find some locations when we were in need. Um, you know, even like our costume designer, Guy Caldwell, he's an amazing, just an amazing human being to believe in us and to believe in the project, to, to, to donate his artistry and his time into putting the costumes together to, you know, to put up with our notes like, oh, I don't know, maybe if we did this and did that, and you'd be like, okay, and then he goes and makes it, you know, and just working on it, but at the same time, letting him fulfill his creative need, it was just, it was such a wonderful collaboration with so many different people that, you know, again, like, it inspired Hisani and myself to keep going. Those long days where you're getting tired and you're like, oh, I just want to wrap this up. You, you think back to these people giving you their time and you take it upon yourself like, no, I cannot let them down. I can't let myself down. I can't let this film down. So you dig deep and you do everything you can to make this film the best it can be, even with, you know, and that's something that you do with or without money. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, definitely. And for Red Hood, it, uh, the, it was a collaboration uh, from the, from directing this project. Uh, give us a insight on who did what, what shots were from whom, uh, cinematography-wise. I know, Mr. Johnson, uh, you worked on a film that we had covered, The Prodigy. Oh, yeah. So did you carry those influences into this film with the cin cinematography work? Um, believe it or not, the I would say the tasks that Alberto and I shared are truly shared. Um, we were very fluid. Uh, I think we tend to switch jobs only when the other person got tired. Um, most of the decision-making about how something would be shot and lit were established uh, uh, very far ahead of shooting. Um, I didn't bring too much of the philosophy from Prodigy into this because for me, again, I think a goal of mine was to do stuff I had never done before. Uh, I really mm -hmm. wanted to move the camera a lot more in this, uh, do, using circular dolly shots, using a jib more often, even when you didn't, you know, not necessarily for sweeping shots, but to give you a happy medium between shoulder mounted, handheld and, and, and being on a tripod. You can kind of float around with the actors a little bit more. Um, I just tried to keep a keen eye on when Alberto needed me. Uh, Alberto did the majority of the heavy lifting on actual camera opping, along with Hanaro Marzan on B cam, and uh, Cristo Ramirez did our focus pulling, yeah. and Alberto focus pulled for himself a lot of the times. I did sound predominantly and uh, watching behind the monitor to on both shots. And whenever Alberto got a little fatigued, I would hop in and relieve him. He would relieve me on sound, 
So, and that happened only, it was very fluid. It happened when it needed to. And, or when, you know, one of us was having a tough day with something, the other person would just hop in. So, and, and I kind of like that because that's a beautiful reason to do a job. Never once was it like, oh, I got to earn credit for this. So let me get in and do it. Or, oh, you're not doing it right. So let me get in and do it. It was always, I think, I think this person could use a break, or I think this person needs, you know, uh, is getting fatigue, or I think this person needs some food. Let me jump in and let him do something else. So I don't know. Yeah. And that was, I mean, it was such an interesting, interesting process as well. Like, you know, working with Asani said everything really was fluid and we were swapping back and forth on certain jobs here and there. Um, but I think a lot of that came from what we did in pre-production leading up to it. It wasn't just like in the moment we're just swapping, Hey, you do this, you do that. We spent a lot of time, you know, really figuring out this project and breaking it down. And to the point that both of us knew the way this film was going to look, the way it was going to sound. And we were just in sync, you know, on that front. And that's something that, if I had to say something to, you know, indie filmmakers, you don't have the money, but you have the time. Take your time in pre-production, know what this film is going to look like, know how you want to go about it. If you can get into a location ahead of time and scout it, it is so important to do a proper tech scout because I think that is what really helped with Red Hood. Like the circular shots that, you know, you mentioned, that came from us looking at the location and going, what can we do in here? And figuring it out ahead of time and planning for that. So we weren't trying to set it up the day of. Um, it was just so imperative to our success that we knew what the game plan was and that Hassani and I were on the same page, you know, wh whether it came to, you know, scheduling, uh, what time an actor's gonna get there, what time do they get into makeup, what are we shooting first, what, are, what is our set designer doing, you know, what are, you know, what scene, are we moving this scene here, are we moving this scene there? It just, everything came down to, me and Asani being able to just, you know, on the fly, because we know it, you know? It, so when things do happen and things do go wrong, we know what this is, has to be. So it's not like we're really thrown off that much. It's the same way that like the way I look at it, I played football a lot growing up. I think of it as like, you know, you get into that two minute drill and the quarterback has his, you know, the quarterback knows the plays and it, every one of the teams like, all right, I got you, I know what this is. And you get into that rhythm and you go, but that only happens when you've built that trust and you've built that camaraderie between each other. And I think that's one of the most important things that I think indie filmmakers today could, you know, spend a little more time doing building that up. Right. Right. And that, that delves into my next a couple of questions. Uh, speaking about the, the technical aspect of the film, the pre-production phase, did you both implement the traditional way of with a storyboard how was the script broken down into that aspect and how did that translate over to the film uh was it did it change of course did it change during the course of the film little nooks and crannies had to be uh alternated um with this um there, there wasn't, we didn't storyboard anything. Um, we did discuss how we wanted to cover the scene and we talked about it. We broke down this, we read through the scene, we broke it down. I mean, even to the point where we're standing in the living room and one of us is pretending to be the camera and the other one is the actor. And we're just like pre-blocking in our own living room, just, you know, breaking down how the scene, you know, the way we see it. But um, 
you know, there were a lot of things that happened kind of in the moment. You see something and you see something in the location or the way the light hits a certain thing or the way the actor had said a certain line or the way they decided to move at a certain moment. You know, there was a lot of little beautiful moments that, that happened on set, which again, I think as a filmmaker, you need to be open to those. Don't be, don't be rigid into your game plan. You need to be open to that, to that spontaneity of like what, what could happen on set. I agree. Um, I, I think the worst thing an independent, no budget filmmaker can do is try and make their film in their bedroom or in their hotel room on a piece of paper with storyboards. Um, I started out Red Hood uh, doing like little animatics of the scenes. So I had an idea of, 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 of a general shot list, but because of the erratic nature of no budget filmmaking when you're not paying for a location they can change their mind at any time and you need to shoot it somewhere else and to a certain extent if your shot list is a little too rigid if it's too based around that location you're going to be in a really tough place so we definitely the improvisation that we welcomed it 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 it, it was all over it was within the performance the actors had moments where they could literally choose their own adventure and we would shift the tone of the rest of the film because both choices were so solid. Do I kill this person or do I not kill this person? And then we'd go with it. Um, and as the actors did that, that's where that improvisational shooting came in mm -hmm. that Alberto's talking about where an actor would move a certain way, the light would hit them a certain way, or we get some sort of lens flare and it just worked. So, and I do think that being fluid and being open and it, it made our film better uh not being so locked into our plan but we also write screenplays where if you were to read it you would know that this shot was a close-up because it speaks about a very specific body part his eyebrow raises his brow furrows he grinds his teeth you know what i mean like things of that nature those are close-ups they walk from one room to another. That That's probably a tracking shot or a wide shot or a two, you know what I mean? Like you understand based on the way you wrote the script and, and also writing the script by yourself, you, you know, or not by yourself, writing your script yourself gives you a much more intricate understanding of the filmmaking. Because obviously when you're writing it, you're seeing it you kind of have an idea of what shots you want or how this flows. And uh, so we felt over-prepared, even though we knew everything could change at a moment's notice. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, I'm familiar with the script writing. So the descriptions that you provide, they also flow. It sounds like almost penning a script for a frame by frame for a comic book which Absolutely. you give that script to the artist and they say, okay, he grinds his teeth. Oh, the, let me get this, draw this character with close-up shot. That's interesting. Absolutely. Most people aren't aware of that as well. Well, <laughs> comic books are, I mean, my mother was a, a little bit of a comic book geek and she passed it on to me. So, and, and also I did sports and in sports you have techniques for certain maneuvers, you know, whether it's wrestling, football, I was a gymnast the movements I would do in gymnastics were so intricate that if you just tried to do the trick, you'd kill yourself. So you would spend weeks, days, weeks, or months breaking the skills into essentially 
frame by frame understandings of how to move your body at certain points in time. And, you know, that's a comic book, frame by frame telling you the story. That's, a, to me, that's a screenplay. Line by line, right, right. you should have an understanding of not just what you're reading, but what you're seeing, because a script is a, it's a, it's a, it's a guideline for a visual medium. So if I exactly. can't see it, we got a big problem. You know, it, you're, you just wrote a radio show, basically, rather than a movie. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, when I write my scripts, onomatopoeias are huge. You can tell that came from my comic book base. I'm always using sounds to transitions and sounds to build tension uh, and sounds to sounds illustrate probably a bit more than words do. You know, the, the, the sound, you know, a uh, worded sound illustrates better than just average words in a script because a bang in big, bold letters and capital letters, that's important on a page. You see that and you're drawn to it. You know, something just happened. And uh, it also informs the way you make the movie, because if sound is a big part of your script, it's going to be an even bigger part of your movie. And uh, we were lucky to end up doing sound with Dog and Pony Studios. James Von Bolt did the entire score with Zayaku, who is a huge artist in the um, electronic sort of EDM, EDM, yeah, EDM. EDM community. Yeah, and then EDM. we had a Grammy-nominated sound mixer or Grammy-winning sound mixer and John McClain doing our actual mix. And that was just an incredible process as well. That's 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 great right there to be able to have that talent be especially in the sound mixing uh in terms of the tools of the trade what advices do you gentlemen offer for up-and-coming filmmakers to invest in and to learn with all the software that we have we have premiere we have after effects um depending if you have a mac or windows what are the tools of the trade that you advise those I feel like technology has gotten to the point now where it is so much more readily available now to make your film than it than it has ever been. So I think for anyone who is looking to make a film, there almost is no excuse. You, you should go out there and make your film. You don't have to have the best camera. You know, you don't have to have the best lights. It, it all comes down to knowing, I think it comes down to understanding yourself your your own artistic merit your own creativity understanding how to light something not necessarily what lights you're using knowing how to frame a shot not necessarily the lens you're using how to move the camera you know the thought process behind those things i think are way more important than saying buy this brand x camera buy this brand light you know um, cause so much it's, 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 it becomes a race. You can never keep up with technology. You could buy the new camera this week. I could have bought a brand new camera today and next week it's already obsolete, you know? So <laughs> people get caught up in that race of, Oh, well, if I just had this camera or if I just had this lens, I could shoot this. No, it's not that get what you, you know, get what you can afford, get what works for you, what you can learn on and go make your movie. Um, I agree. Obviously, that was a brilliant answer. Uh, I would add to it. Um, and this is a really loaded sort of question. There's so many ways I can go with it. But if I had to say, um, 
when we're talking about investing in things and what equipment we need as indie filmmakers, I automatically jump to which indie filmmaker. And I'm going to jump to the lowest common denominator, the poor minority who has no connections in Hollywood, no film festival experience, no nothing. What does that person invest in that will one day change the fortune of themselves and them, their family while they still get fulfillment out of being a creator. The biggest thing you need to invest in is yourself. Um, first and foremost, getting up and using YouTube and the internet to learn what you can. The equipment will come because once again, the one thing you do have, whether you come from a poor family, whether you're black, white, Asian, no matter what, you have time and in time, if you educate yourself enough, you will be afforded opportunities to make the money to invest in tools, which technically I even hate saying investing in tools. You're not investing in tools. You're investing in yourself. You are, the, you are your greatest weapon because a lot, of, a lot of the content creators I know are so creative that they could sit in their room with a pen and a piece of paper and if they put enough heart into what they're doing, they'll change their they'll change their lives and the lives of their family and the people around them. So, you know, use your time really, really well. Everything else, the things that cost money, the cameras, the lights, those are just things that help you create content at the speed of thought. When you have an idea, you can actually act on that idea and communicate that idea two people who will give you more money uh, but lack the vision to understand what it is you're trying to do with the words you give them. That's the way it needs to be looked at. You're creating a visual medium because sitting down next to a campfire and telling the story just doesn't communicate it to <laughs> every one of your listeners <laughs> as well right. as visu the visual medium does. So, you know, I think guys like me, the minority filmmaker, no, fam no, 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 no family support financially, no connections in Hollywood. Get ready for the marathon. Yep. Create, gauge your your progress as a creator. Um, use the tools that you uh, obtain over time as a way to gauge your progress. But they are not a they should not and they will not ever be a representation of your self-worth. And uh, remember that if you lose everything that you invested time and money into, you still have the skills you obtained and you can sit your butt on your bed with a laptop and write a story that becomes the biggest film ever if you try hard enough. At least that's my perspective. Excellent. Excellent. That's great words of advice from, from you both. And to touch up on that, especially if you're a younger person, even in even mid twenties is still young. Yep. And if you have the time, and if you live in you with your abuela, <laughs> you could go intern with a film company for free. True. Learn. 
the ins and outs so that way you could get the business aspect because creating film is one thing but you need to know the intricacies of the business distribution so on and so forth take that knowledge and apply it as well to your skill set true very true absolutely um critical thinking like there you go critical thinking like every time you make something you should be using it like with red hood right now every bit of information we get is it, it's it's it turns into i don't know we we use it to improve our next project like you have to look at things long term red hood is great we did what we we handled business with what we had and in a way it was successful but now it's all about how did red hood make the feature we're about to shoot better what did we learn from it who did we connect with um who did we learn we couldn't trust? Who did we learn was full of shit? Like, you know, hey, what, what exactly. idea that we have going into Red Hood that we discovered was stupid. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it, it's it's about both what do you do and what should you never do again? Exactly, exactly. And touching up on that, uh, oh. two more questions. Well, this is the the last question would be a uh, open ended question. But for now, what projects do you guys have in the works, either separately or collaboratively? Two more questions. The last one is going to be an open ended question. But right now, what projects do you guys have in the works, either individually or collaboratively? Um, well, now that we're, you know, we're, we're finishing We finished up Red Hood. Um, me and Hassani, we're working on two feature films together right now. We are getting ready to shoot one and punching up the script for another that will follow after. Um, yeah. And then after that, you know, we're, we're already trying to look and see what's gonna, what's gonna follow after that. So we always try to have something, you know, in the works, what's next, what's next. Um, but right now our full attention is this feature film and what the the film after it yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm not sure how, how uh, much i should go into we uh i mean we're excited about some uh some smaller things we may be shooting a trailer for a project that we want to try and get investors interested in or you know maybe crowdfund um we're very excited about that um there's a lot of testing uh, the best part about being a person who has chosen to own their own equipment is that I can go out and try new things. I can work at the speed of thought. If I have a question about a shot I can pull off, I can go out and try it. Um, and at the end of the day of just going out and testing, I'm always a better filmmaker because I've learned, I've learned that the idea I had either works or doesn't. So, yeah, we got a lot of testing and two feature films lined up. Great. And to conclude, open-ended question for Red Hood, just self-promote. Uh, where can people find it? Of course, YouTube. What channel exactly? And insert your social media platforms of choice so fans could follow you. Um, yeah, so for fans, you know, they can see the film Red Hood It. It is currently on Robot Underdog's channel on YouTube. If you look up Robot Underdog 2, it should come right up there. Um, in terms of social media, they can follow me on Instagram 
at Saber Media, S-A-B-E-A-R Media, and Instagram at Berto Triana. Um, if you'd like to follow my journey as a filmmaker, you can follow me on Twitter at Hisani J. That's H-I-S-O-N-N-I, the letter J following that. And, or on Instagram. Instagram is the much more exciting platform for me. Uh, at Hisani, H-I-S-O-N-N-I. Great, thank you. And one personal question for the film itself. The lighting, was that post or pre? Uh, because it looks fantastic. You guys have the lightings like casting the good shadows and you have the, the lens flares, which... A lot of that was our actual lighting on set. Most of what you see on screen is we got it in camera. We we spent a lot of time, you know, breaking down our lighting and figuring out the way we wanted to make the film look. Like, how did we want this scene to look? What colors did we want to play with? How much shadow did we want in this shot? Uh, light placement, lighting design. You know, when we are moving the camera, we do catch these nice flares as we moved around. So. A lot of that was intentional and was planned that, you know, we we sought out to do those things. Yeah, the, the lighting was a huge part of this project. Once again, if you're, you know, testing yourself, you kind of want to see what you could pull off in camera as much as possible. Because, you know, you're not always going to be able to rely on visual effects to, to, to get you ahead. This one, we wanted to be just the strength of the story, the strength of the acting, the strength of the cinematography. And we were lucky enough to uh, get the support of a company called IntelliTech. Yes. And they create lighting at a budget that filmmakers can afford. So we snagged a few wonderful lights that were suggested by IntelliTech. Um, and their lighting is pretty much what we use to light our actors' faces in every single scene. It was an IntelliTech light. And what was great about those lights is it felt like they were made with all of indie filmmakers' troubles in mind. <laughs> like the, the bane of my existence as a filmmaker is um, I either had to run back and forth to adjust lights all day. You know, if you adjust a light three times every five minutes during a 12-hour day, you've run a marathon just going back and forth to check lights. That's wasted energy. I want to put that energy into directing my actors, into motivating my crew not touching lights. So IntelliTech lights come with tons of remote access to all of their lights. You put them up there, you, you can go behind the monitor and from another room, dial in the intensity or color temperature and or RGB of their lights. And when you buy the lights, you still have enough money to go make your movie, which is what we just proved. Well, thank you gentlemen for your time. Thank you for this rich information. Uh, I appreciate uh, the film and all the, Thank you, the answers that you have provided. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Ken. Television. Ash vs. Evil Dead cancelled its stars. News have circulated across the web, across every major horror news outlet that stars has cancelled Ash versus Evil Dead. April 29th would be the final episode for the season three 
season three finale to be exact and stars made the decision after ash versus evil dead faced dwindling ratings in its first debut back in 2015 the viewership was 437,000 viewers and now the viewership for ash versus evil dead went down dramatically to 100,075 viewers that's a huge impact especially for a series of this caliber those who stood on to watch the series until the final season season three or die hard horror connoisseurs it's the track record for film to small screen adaptation is 90% of these shows don't last you have Hannibal you have Minority Report you have 12 Monkeys it is surprising if a television series based off of a film can extend for so long how long can this plot be stretched out how long is it before character the main protagonist of this film or the theme of the film translating into the small screen how long will audiences hang on to the same shit well that's not to say that the evil dead is boring or a piece of shit or whatever the evil dead ash versus evil dead had its own blend of comedy with the recent reboot slash remake of the evil dead not so long ago that was a more grittier feel to this franchise and coming in with stars with the content that they presented was more comedic that was a huge contrast so in any event it is good in a way that ash versus evil dead is finalizing its season you don't want to stretch out a concept for too long it, it will just bore audiences even diehard fans would get bored with the repetitiveness of the plot and the antics of a certain character here is what bruce campbell had to say about the cancellation of ash versus evil dead quote ash williams was the role of a lifetime it was an honor to reunite with evil dead partners rob tappert and sam raimi to give our tireless fans another taste of the outrageous horror comedy they demanded i will always be grateful to stars for the opportunity to revisit the franchise that launched our careers you could catch the series finale airing at 9 p.m eastern pacific on stars if you have stars on the flip side of the corn there is a tragedy here bruce campbell will no longer be portraying the role the iconic role of ash williams 
on his Facebook page, he posted a heartfelt post. His retirement of this particular character. Here's what he had to say. Quote, Good people, Evil Dead fans everywhere, I bid you a heartfelt farewell playing Ash, the character I took acting lessons with for 39 years. I am hereby retiring from that portrayal. It's time I followed Ash from his formative years through his midlife crisis and decline. What a thrill. What a privilege. We had a great resurgence with the help of stars. Kudos, not jeers, folks. It made it possible for 15 more hours of evil deadness in your life. The equivalent of 10 more features. Is Ash dead? Never. Ash is as much of a concept as a person. Where there is evil in this world, there must be one to counter. Man or woman, it matters not. Thanks for watching. Love, Bruce. Unquote. Well, some fans might take this retirement as sadness. Others might take it, such as myself, as a stepping stone for characters, for actors who are pigeonholed into a certain character who once they are adapted to a certain role that is the only role they are known for that is a tragedy into their career they cannot expand even if they try to case in point look at harry potter the guy can't get any acting gigs without persons whether it be the audiences or if he does a guest appearance somewhere the term Harry Potter always comes up that's why I applaud Hugh Jackman breaking out of his role as Wolverine sure he gave that character an iconic look he built his physique around his character matured the character but it's time to move on you do your time you portray your role time to move into other and better things instead of getting stuck in one role it is difficult as an actor or an actress to break out of a role if you are known for that particular character so bruce campbell we all wish you the best hey i'm looking forward to see what other concept bruce campbell will be integrated as it would it be an animation or a comic book or graphic novel or as bruce has stated in his comment man or woman we are unsure at this point with the gender benders role in reboots and reimagination of horror films it won't be surprising if the next ash williams adaptation or representation May, may very well be a female. Now that is interesting. Interesting and sexy. A female with an arm as a chainsaw. I don't think we've seen that. We've seen a woman with a machine gun attached to her leg. But I don't think a chainsaw, no. But any event, if you're an Evil Dead fan, 
don't miss this final episode if you have netflix catch up on previous episodes hey i love evil dead i love the concept even i am not a big fan of horror comedy but ash versus evil dead did have its moments i'm glad it ends now on this note than dragging too long and just becoming something of its former self trailer first impressions venom you should be extremely afraid Thank you for bringing us collectively to this moment. It is a moment that so many have dreamed of claiming. History starts today. The guy you work for is an evil person. Director Ruben Fleischer. Writing credits go to Heli Marceau. Will Beal, Scott Rosenberg, Todd McFarlane for creating the Venom character, Jeff Pinker, and David Michelle based on the Marvel character. Here we have the first full feature adaptation for Marvel Comics, Venom. Sure, Venom made an appearance in Spider-Man 3, but this is the first time we get to see this iconic character, anti-hero, villain, whatever he is described. This is the first film portraying the role of Venom slash Eddie Brock is actor Tom Hardy. Michelle Williams portrays Anne Wainig and Woody Harrelson has yet an undetermined role in this film. According to IMDB, there is no plot associated with the film, but the film is slated for release in October 5th, 2018. So the trailer dropped on Monday evening and it caused a ruckus, a stir, an uproar on the internet across every major movie outlet, including horror. Why horror? Because in this case, Venom is a R-rated film. It is a horror film. INDB has it listed under action horror sci-fi. Looking at the trailer, the only horror element that you will see is the final frames of the trailer in which Tom Hardy's character, Eddie Brock, transforms into Venom. Now, I'm not going to get into who Venom is, what is his backstory, and so on and so forth. If you need that information, we'll provide a little small tidbit in our podcast notes. But Venom falls into the Marvel Universe, particularly in the Spider-Man realm, so to speak, in the storyline. I am not familiar with this character. I'm very much familiar with the work of Tom Hardy. He is a great actor, extravagant actor with the way he carries his voice and his physical presence. 
end. Judging by the trailer, I can see that he is in a conflict with himself. This is not the first time that Mr. Hardy has portrayed a role, a dual role. He has portrayed one before in which he was twin brothers. One was a psychotic maniac and the other one was a refined gentleman. So in this case, Mr. Hardy is portraying the same type of acting skills here. He must portray a, a conflicted soul, one that is being taken over by this parasitic creature, the Venom, and the host who doesn't know if he's in control or not. While the fan base may be criticizing the film because it doesn't follow the story narrative or Venom looks like carnage and what have you. There are many, many out there who have voiced their pleasure on the visual aesthetics of the film. If you go onto YouTube and check the comments, you see that the majority of the persons, the audiences, the demographics are in favor of this film. It's a long-awaited film. And this, I believe, yeah, this is the first time Marvel has done a horror movie with one of their characters. Deadpool is a rated R, but is a rated R for its comedy and sexual innuendo and violence. Here we have horror, which is great. As I stated, I'm not familiar with Venom or his storyline. It's just on the surface that I am familiar with this particular character. But what I do appreciate is the, the costuming, the range of this character on, on screen. It looks gross, looks menacing. I'm just looking forward to seeing how this film will interpret from the comic book realm onto the big screen. Will it follow the success of the other Marvel comics universe in film or would it see a utter failure just as the Hulk did and of course Spider-Man how many fucking remakes are we gonna do with Spider-Man yeah that's just ridiculous it's money wasting but hey people enjoy this shit and on the on the other side of the coin I am not a big fan of comic book movies, the big explosions and action sequences. I love horror. And in this case, I love horror mixed with Marvel characters. Venom, I'm looking forward to it. Can't wait for this film to come out. I'm definitely going to check it out. And yeah, hey, uh, Tom Hardy's a good actor. So I'm eager to see how he's going to portray this iconic role. Agony announcement trailer. There are many paths that can lead you to me. Enjoy the power I offered you. Find your way through the wasteland and savor the taste of blood. We are waiting for you, my beloved. Yes, we are. <laughs> Closing off 
our trailer first impression segment is not a trailer for film it's a trailer for an upcoming video game titled agony agony is more than two years in the making trailer released for this concept in which the player portrays the role of a demon trapped in hell the visuals the graphic nature the tone of the survival horror game is like nothing i have ever seen before and i'm a connoisseur of survival horror video games from resident evil to dead space but this agony this doesn't compare it wow amazing it just leaves your jaw drop now of course with any indie game and with every indie gaming platform and developer there are the challenges of designing the game getting the appropriate funds and of course the delivery date distribution agony faced many challenges because of the content of the video game the horror content the vulgarity the visuals on a scale of 1 to 10 it was about a 15 and that doesn't play well with certain areas and certain marketplaces of course the game got banned in terms of getting the appropriate funding to get this video game completed the team at mad mind studios created a kickstarter campaign and the goal surpassed the 66,666 dollar goal it earned 182,642 dollars amazing contributions this from contributors horror enthusiasts video game enthusiasts survivor horror enthusiasts this is once you got a glimpse of the initial trailer for this video game you were intrigued by the visuals and the team behind this project weren't just indie developers who just wanted to make a game these were experienced individuals who have worked on titles such as tom clancy's the division the witcher 3 sniper ghost warrior so these were experienced developers they knew what the fuck they were doing when they created this monstrosity of a game in every good context i mean it now the game has a release date finally after the ups and downs it would be released on the 29th of may 2018 and thanks to some stretch goals agony will feature agony mode a 3d character model viewer multiple endings and the game will also receive the virtual reality vr treatment it's mind-blowing just to see the game on a playstation 3 or an xbox one i'm assuming that on a vr the players will be <laughs> wow wow is not the word for this game so we conclude this segment with the video game trailer an announcement trailer do check it out 
we'd also be providing some information on Agony, which we had provided initial coverage before during its development phase. Also note, Agony, and the word Agony, there is a subliminal message with the letter O for those who have not noticed the O is a depiction of vagina dentata that is a description of a female vagina containing teeth so yeah just look at that O and the way it's shaped ovally looks like a vagina with teeth vagina dentata that goes to show you the the grotesque awesomeness that this game is projecting for players i can't wait to get my hands this makes it worthwhile to save up and get a playstation 4. thank you for tuning in you were listening to dk mag podcast season 7 episode 6 catch this podcast on google music itunes Spotify, Stitcher, tune in if you have a Google Home device. Okay, Google, play DK Mag podcast. I am your host, Ken Artus, and I'm also the founder for DK Mag. We are DK Mag. You could catch us on the web at DECAYMAG.com. We are not DK Magazine, we are not the letters DK. We are not the word DK. We are DK Mag. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest under DK Mag. Thank you for tuning in. Till next time. <laughs>